the extent to which they care is completely dominated by partisan lenses. That is, it's always the person from the other party that's corrupt. Welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. We are thrilled to welcome Ray Fisman, Professor of Economics at Boston University, long-standing corruption expert and an author of two very influential books. One, Economic Gangsters, Corruption, Violence and the Poverty of Nations, that he co-authored with Ed Miguel, and the other, Corruption, What Everybody Needs to Know, that he co-authored with Miriam Golden. Matthew Stevenson and Ray sat down to discuss the classic questions whether corruption always hinders development, which types of corruption are particularly harmful, conversations that inspired Ray's career, and Ray's more recent work on the hidden influence of political connections. You can find all the reference papers in the show notes, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Greetings and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson, and I'm delighted to have as our guest today, Ray Fisman, who's a professor in the economics department at Boston University and has uh, written a lot of really important and influential stuff on corruption, anti-corruption, going back, I think, nearly two decades with some of the first work. Again, author of uh, articles too numerous to mention, as well as two important books on the topic, Uh, Economic Gangsters, co-authored with Ed Miguel, and Corruption, What Everyone Needs to Know, co-authored with the political scientist Miriam Golden. Uh, Ray, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. So maybe start our conversation uh, by uh, learning a little bit more about your background and interest in this field. So when you were getting your PhD in economics back in the 1990s, Corruption wasn't exactly a backwater, but it wasn't a, like a major central field in, in economics research at the time. At least that's my impression. So what, what drew you to the topic? What kind of got you interested in the subject matter in the first place? I certainly came to it, I suppose you would say by accident. If you go back far enough, I think of myself as a development economist and like many people in economics, came to the field because I was interested in understanding the causes of poverty and also how to find our way out of poverty as, as a global community. I ended up for various reasons doing a joint PhD between the Harvard Business School and the Economics Department. And one of my advisors, uh, essentially, I, like many PhD students, was floundering looking for a topic. And so my advisor, who was a fount of great ideas, suggested, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to compare the end games in Hong Kong versus Indonesia? Because Hong Kong, we had a well-defined endpoint when the city would be handed back to China and the regime ends, as opposed to Suharto, where it's an uncertain endpoint. But there was very much the sense that it After President Saharto left, there was a bit of a leadership vacuum. And as with many good ideas, it didn't come from me. It came from shopping this idea, this basic idea that my thesis advisor handed to me around to others, that is knocking on 
other faculty members' doors and asking, well, what do you think of this idea? And then taking that person's idea and taking it to the next office door. And eventually, I knocked on the door of someone, uh, this guy Lou Wells, who's in old-time corruption-slash-Indonesia scholar, and he said, well, why don't you look at what happens when Sahardo gets sick? Because that's like a shock to the um, lifespan of the regime. And so that seemed like a great idea that Lou had just handed to me, and that formed the foundation of my thesis, which was looking at uh, what happens to the value of companies that are connected to President Suharto when there's this shock to the longevity of the regime and looking at their stock market declines as some indication of the value of being connected to this regime. And that kind of launched me on this lifelong, to this point, uh, enterprise of trying to understand corruption. I think part of it is to go back to my roots. Like I got into this area because I was interested in understanding the development process. And once you start to think about institutional development and institutional failure and corruption, you kind of very quickly come to the view that this is central to understanding what makes countries develop or not. That is, we can have the most optimized ideas on how many teachers to put in a classroom and how many bed nets to hand out and what to charge for them. But if all the school supplies get stolen and the teachers don't show up to work and uh, the bed nets sit rotting in a warehouse, not much good. So that's how I came to the field, but also some of the work that got me interested in it. So that last thing that you just said about the, the impact that corruption has in the development process is, as you know, something that a lot of people are very interested and concerned about. In the economics field and political science as well, there's been a bit of a debate over the years about the extent to which corruption writ large uh, has adverse impacts on economic development, right? So if you go back to political scientist Samuel Huntington, who's one of my professors in graduate school, though not an advisor, who famously made the argument that at least in certain contexts, especially developing countries, corruption could be functional, both politically and economically. Like there's a long tradition of that sort of corruption greasing the wheels of, uh, uh, of an economy and so forth. Having studied the topic you know, for a while uh, from the perspective of a development economist, do you have a view on that general debate? I suppose the way this would cash out from a policy perspective is how much should people who care about development um, and international institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, and so forth, uh, care about fighting corruption as central to their missions? And how much should they say, well, corruption is kind of something that happens, but the adverse impacts writ large are either not that big or maybe uh, sometimes positive? Okay, so this is clearly one of the big questions. So you can't expect me in the course of a podcast to give you any kind of definitive solution or answer. So let me just throw out a few ideas on this or a few points on this. First of all, the optimal level of corruption is not zero. Like the objective is not to get rid of anything that looks like illegal or inappropriate use of public office for private gain. Needless to say, in every country, whether it's Sweden, Denmark, the United States, Canada, we have public officials who engage in such behaviors. And you know, I once heard the analogy used, which I think works reasonably well, that you wouldn't have a 
$20 necklace and decide to spend a quarter million dollars on the very best safe possible to ensure that it doesn't get stolen. That is sometimes these kinds of costs of safeguarding something, public funds, for example, uh, far outweigh the, uh, the benefits of whatever it is being safeguarded. The other observation, kind of broad observation I would make is that all corruption is certainly not created equal. You know, something that was often said about Suharto was that you know, Lee Kuan Yew famously uh, said something along the lines of, uh, yes, of course, there was corruption. Of course, the Suharto family enriched themselves. But the people of Indonesia are lucky, be essentially, because Suharto was a good leader who, you know, one has to confront the uncomfortable reality that under Suharto, uh, Indonesia grew at, I don't know, 6% per year over the course of several decades, which is quite, quite remarkable. Now, I have to say, just as an aside, this is not considering uh, the human rights abuses, which were rife under Suharto, but just purely in terms of economic growth terms versus corruption. Indonesia, China, these are pretty uncomfortable counterexamples to the view that we must uh, rid the world of corruption that we have to we have to confront. So you can sort of think about Suharto as being, in the wor words of uh, Mansur Olsen, the classic stationary bandit, who is, of course, taking his share, but by cultivating the Indonesian economy over the long run, uh, he was able to extract that much more. As another aside, if you'll pardon this kind of my meandering digressive response, People famously referred to Saharto's wife as her name was Tien, Madam Tien, Tien Percent, because that was the take. Uh, and that was enough to enrich the family by billions, but not so much that uh, there was no incentive to invest or work, or the country was stripped bare. Uh, pillaged by the the Sahartos. And one thing that was said, how much this is true, I don't know, is that after she died, the Saharto family and the kids in particular didn't exhibit such restraint. And you can contrast this with what I think is one of the most poignant illustrations of Olson's non-stationary or roving bandit, which was I think it was Baby Doc. I can't remember if it was Papa or Baby Doc in Haiti. There was a railway that connected Port-au-Prince to the country's second city, which is the name is escaping me. And under Duvalier's railway link, which one can imagine is a productive resource, was taken apart, put in shipping cars, and uh, sent out of the country. So that's the sort of thing where you are benefiting yourself at the expense of the public with a very short time horizon. So I feel like that is perhaps one illustration of the worst kind of corruption versus maybe the less damaging 
kind of corruption. Now, I will say that if you take a step back and think about the big picture of do we want to turn a blind eye to corruption generally? That is, can corruption actually be a positive foster the development process? I think very few people today would take that view. The various arguments that are put forth to support this view that you have dumb bureaucrats who come up with stupid policies and thank God for corruption, that you can bribe your way around them. Um, there's a legacy of colonial red tape, and thank God you can bribe your way around the red tape. I feel like those arguments have fallen into disrepute and for good reason. Just to give one example, you know, bureaucrats observe that it's the so-called endogenous red tape problem. If they observe that they can extract bribes by helping people around red tape or by helping them to uh, evade taxes, they have that much more incentive to create even more red tape so they can take even more bribes to uh, help firms around the red tape that they've just created. So that's great. There's so much there. Um, I need to think about what I want to follow up on first. Maybe one thing I'd like you to unpack a bit more is in the contrast between the Duvaliers in, in Haiti and Saharto in Indonesia, you touched on a more general distinction, and it's really a, more of a continuum than a, than a binary distinction, but between forms of corruption or corrupt regimes that are less bad for development um, and those that are really bad for development. The, the point you made at the end is I think is important because um, with respect to Indonesia, I don't think the, the, I, I did not understand you to be saying that Indonesia grew at 6% a year because the Saharto regime was really corrupt. Now, maybe if they weren't so corrupt, it would have been 7 or 8% a year. But the point is they achieved positive development outcomes over a fairly long period of time. We can argue about the counterfactual, but the corruption wasn't massively holding back the country. Whereas in places like Haiti, it, it seems like it was. Can I interject here? Of course. So I want to be very careful with this. Your use of the term counterfactual, it reminds me of like, this is clearly memorable for me because this conversation happened almost 30 years ago. So it brings to mind the related conversation between Jeff Williamson, who was professor of mine in graduate school, and the late Alice Amston, who was a great scholar of East Asian development. And I remember Jeff Williamson making the argument that uh, Korea could have grown at least as fast if they had had market-driven rather than government-driven development. That you know, he had some computable general equilibrium model which told him so. And I remember Amston saying, well, you've got your model, but I have real life. That is, it is hard to, uh, it's uncomfortable to say Indonesia would have grown even faster if Saharto had been uh, less, because it is one of the great growth episode, economic development episodes in modern history, in history generally. So while there were a lot of awful things about the Saharto regime, you can't take away the 6% over 30 years uh, economic track record. That's the end of the interruption. It's a, it's a perfectly fair interruption. It does get to kind of a deep question that goes beyond issues of corruption, which is how we make inferences from the observable data in this historical record. 
So um, the exchange you just uh, described, very powerful, makes a lot of sense. On the flip side, right, there are always outlier cases, right? So the example I sometimes think of in trying to resist the idea that we know that corruption didn't hurt development because the country grew quickly is like there's a general there's a general finding that smoking cigarettes shortens your lifespan. And, you know, back in the day when this was more of a topic of debate, someone would say, oh, but my uncle smoked three packs a day and lived until he was 92. Doesn't that refute your idea that, you know, smoking shortens your lifespan? And my reaction to that is, well, no, not really, both because it could be an outlier case and maybe you would have lived to 100 otherwise. So we can't know. But your point is well taken, which is the growth performance in Indonesia is strong enough, is close enough to the high end. that If corruption was holding Indonesia back, it wasn't by a lot or so it seems because like there's just an upper ceiling on historical growth performance. Bracket that for a moment. I might want to circle back to that because I have another kind of related question. But what I was getting at before was what do we know from research in economics or other fields about in what circumstances uh, will the, the corrupt regime be really bad for development and when will it be less bad or not bad at all for development? So you reference this famous work by Mansur Olson, which some of our listeners might be familiar with and, and some might not, who uses kind of, a, kind of an economic fable of the roving bandit mm-hmm. who just pillages and takes everything and leaves nothing behind and the stationary bandit who wants the, the territory over which he rules to like do reasonably well, even though he's stealing stuff. So that's, a, I think, a good starting point. But if you were to try to characterize in broad terms what forms of corruption or types of corrupt regime are likely to be most destructive to economic development and what forms of corruption or corrupt regimes might be least destructive economically, even though we might condemn them on other grounds, what, what, have, we, what have we learned from the last couple of decades of economic research on that kind of question? So this is a wonderful question if some of your listeners are PhD students in particular, because the short answer is that on the empirical side, we actually don't have a whole lot on this question at all. And in particular, we don't have a whole lot that would tell us really that much about the extent to which fables or theory play out in reality. And I think there's a lot of interest in better understanding the circumstances under which corruption is more or less damaging. So I can give you some theories, but I actually can't give you a whole lot in the way of data-driven exercises. I'll give you one. I'll give you a couple of theories, and I'll talk about some of the the evidence that exists for uh, each of them. So here are two classic theories related to uh, how damaging corruption would be. So uh, around the time I was doing my thesis, a classic theory piece by uh, Andre Schleifer and Rob Vishny came out, which I believe had the title Corruption in 1998, and basically taking an industrial organization approach to thinking about questions related to corruption. And one of the industrial organization analogs was to think about Uh, the so-called double marginalization problem in economics and how it might, what its analog might be 
in in the context of bureaucrats interacting with potential firms. So the double marginalization problem is as follows. If you have a monopolist, a firm that owns a market, it's going to kind of uh, trade off raising prices, which means it earns more per sale versus the effect of higher prices on how much it sells. And so you raise prices, you get more per sale, but you sell less. What you don't want is, let's say, a monopolist. So let's say there's only one seller of dog food in America. Um, you don't want the single seller of dog food in America selling to the single retailer, Walmart, who then raises its, each one raises its prices, thinking about this trade-off between higher prices versus selling less without taking into account the spillover on the other business. So they end up both raising prices and you end up with higher dog food prices at the end of this chain. Uh, supply chain than if, say, the dog food seller bought out Walmart and you just had a single monopolist. So the analog in bribery and corruption terms is imagine that you have just Saharto, the centralized system where you have a single coordinated bribe taker. He's going to think about like how much can I extract from businesses such that I maximize the total take, which is the number of businesses that I allow to exist, times the bribes that I extract from them. Now, if in contrast to this case, you have, and this was motivated by Schleifer's observations about uh, post-Soviet Russia, that you had these uncoordinated ministries, each, which were trying, each of which were trying to get a piece of every business that came into existence. You had the labor inspector, you had the environmental inspector, you had the land regulation people. They are each taking their cut without thinking about how the cut that they take affects the business. Uh, the land inspector is just thinking about how much can you take in land bribes without thinking about what effect does that have on the bribes extracted by the labor inspector. The labor inspector is doing the same thing. And so they end up all setting their, their bribe prices, quote, too high. And so you get more aggregate bribery and fewer aggregate businesses being created relative to the centralized case of Suharto, for example. Um, there's a classic paper by Ben Olkin and Patrick Barron on this. It's not in the context of businesses. It's, in the con it's called the Tollbooth Theory of Corruption. And literally, they looked at what happened when uh, toll booths disappeared along uh, roads in, um, I'm sure you can help me with the name of the place. Ache, wasn't it? That's right, Aceh, when uh, civil war in Aceh, when the peace accord was signed, uh, they started removing military checkpoints, which is kind of like removing, uh, imagine you start out with three inspectors. Now you just have two. So to get from um, Malabo to, I can't remember the name of the other point on this road, they were looking at aggregate bribes paid as you drove along the main road from Aceh into um, you can help me with the perhaps with the neighboring state. 
Uh, you, I, I lo- you lost me. There. I'm, dr- <laughs> I'm drawing. A, I'm drawing a blank on the neighboring state. But uh, as these checkpoints were removed, it's kind of like moving to a more centralized regime where there's only one bribe extractor relative to many bribe extractors, and you do see that this as checkpoints disappear. Each checkpoint that remains does raise their price because they see, oh, now I get a larger share because there are fewer people extracting bribes. But it rises sufficiently little that aggregate bribes decline. So at least in this narrow context, it is consistent with the toll booth theory. Another theory, which for which I'll give you less compelling evidence, but maybe in a more relevant or, if you like, externally valid setting, is something else that people, I keep coming back to Suharto as like the canonical efficient corruption person. Something else that was said about bribery and corruption under Suharto is you knew what you were buying and you knew you'd get it. There's a compelling quote in I think it's a teaching case by someone at INSEAD on Manulife, a Canadian life insurance company. There's an executive, an anonymous executive, who makes the comment something along the lines of, under Saharto, you knew what you were getting uh, and you knew it would be delivered. Now there's chaos, something along those lines. So there's a uh, businesses don't like uncertainty. If there is higher uncertainty, there will be less, uh, understandably less investment because you're inter- interested in some kind of risk-adjusted returns. So another, quote, theory that we have is that greater uncertainty in the price of the bribe or the benefit, the amenity that's delivered in return uh, is more damaging than a system where everything is, is certain. I will say that there's this anecdote that sticks out in this domain, again, in Indonesia, for post-Saharto Indonesia. It was a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act case, I believe, against Monsanto. And what I remember about this was they had paid $50,000 to an environmental official to make whatever environmental problem existed go away. Um, but the part that was more memorable is they paid their 50000 but they didn't get the permit. And so, you know, at least under Saharto, you knew if you paid the cash, you'd get the permit in return. There's some work by Shang uh, Jinwei on variance in bribe prices based on survey data and relating that to investment. That's kind of, I'm sure Shang Jin would agree that this is not the last word on this topic. It's using, uh, again, survey data, dispersion and survey responses, whether everyone says this is the bribe price or whether some people say I don't have to pay bribe at all. Other people say it's 30% of a project versus another place where everyone says it's 15% of every project. The average bribe rate is the same. One has high dispersion, the other has certainty. So, but it relies on survey evidence, A, and B, it's kind of these macro outcomes. That's something else where uh, you could imagine it mattering a lot, but we really have relatively little evidence on the question. 
So there's so much more we can talk about in, 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 this line, in this line of discussion, but I wanted to touch on something else, again, concerning Indonesia. And I want to pick up on your expertise in issues of political connectedness, because your, at least your initial research on Indonesia is the Suharto era. Of course, the Suharto era ends uh, with the Asian financial crisis in 1997. I gather there's a bit of a debate about how much long-term damage the Asian financial crisis did to these economies. It's clear that Indonesia was still better off even after that crisis than it had been 30 years ago. But the reason I was wanted to ask you about this is I'm an outsider to the debates about the Asian financial crisis and to financial economics generally, but I gather there's a debate about the extent to which a root cause of that crisis was some form of cronyism, corruption, connectedness, et cetera, the, the, the bad loans to good friends problem. So uh, my understanding is there's, a, is there's a debate about this. And some people think that one of the big problems, one of the reasons that the um, financial infrastructure in Southeast Asia was so vulnerable is there were, there were a lot of loans to people who shouldn't have gotten loans. Uh, and then once you start to pull on a thread, everything sort of collapsed. A little bit like the housing crisis that began in the West in 2007, 2008, although the underlying mechanism was arguably a bit different. But I, again, I gather there's a dispute about this, the extent to which you know, so-called crony capitalism and so forth was actually an important part of the crisis. Do you, I know it's not been a subject of your research, at least as far as I know, but given that you, know, you kind of have some expertise both in the region and in the topic area, do you have thoughts about the degree to which these issues were an important, played an important role in the Asian financial crisis? Again, I'm not going to resolve this I don't question, expect you to. Just, just give, give me some general thoughts for, for podcast purposes. I'll offer you a couple of thoughts and at least one reference that I always found to be useful for teaching purposes. And so maybe that will be useful for others. So it's quite dated at this point. It also, I think it's useful to think about some of the insane misallocation of resources that is going on, has gone on in China in recent days, that you know, some of it might be due to cronyism, some of it might be due to simply the desire to push loans out the door, to push money out the door, to prop up or promote uh, development, however fleeting or illusory, so-called ghost towns, that it's going to often be hard to distinguish between those two. In both cases, you have government banks who are pushing ridiculous loans out the door. I, uh, the reference that I wanted to suggest is there's a Journal of Corporate Finance article by Raghu Rajan, who is a professor at the University of Chicago, but was also head of the Bank of India for some years, as well as Luigi Zingales, on exactly this question of how bad was cronyism and personalized loans for, um, for East Asian economies. They have this framework, which I think is useful, which is when countries are poor and there's relatively less development, returns are high, if you believe in diminishing returns to capital. So there's tremendous value just to kind of pushing money out the door 
and perhaps pushing out money out the door on a large scale. And so this, these kinds of personalized uh, lending relationships maybe work okay. And again, you can make the same argument about government bureaucrats allocating loans just, tried, just to try to create development, create the illusion of development, whatever. But once countries move up the development curve, become richer, you really need a more fine-grained allocation mechanism. And so you actually need the credit loan officers, you need uh, equity markets, you need equity analysts who uh, allow for there to be these market signals and better due diligence that allows for a more efficient capital allocation. And they were essentially arguing that the Asian financial crisis was the result of, as you say, crony capitalism, but there was this need for Korea, um, Malaysia, et cetera, to move to this more market-based approach. The extent to which they have made it there, that's not... So most of my work has shifted to corruption in the US. So uh, I'm not the one to comment on how close they've come to, the, to this aspiration. You can certainly point to things in the relatively recent past that might suggest they're not there yet, but I'm sure you can point to the same things in the US to say we're not there yet either. I want to pick up on that in just a moment. Actually, I want to ask you about some of your recent research on corruption or related issues in the US. Before we get there, I did want to ask about one other aspect of the more recent work that you've done on issues of corruption or political connectedness more broadly. Political connectedness might imply corruption, but of course, we don't know for sure. Um, We've been talking a lot in this conversation about the economic consequences, you know, economic relatively narrowly defined growth rates and capital allocation and so forth. But some of the work that you've done recently, I found really interesting because it highlights the the human cost in a more direct way in the the domains of environment, health and safety and so forth. Um, I won't try to summarize your work, but I thought it would be useful for those of our listeners Mm -hmm. familiar with it. If you could share some of the recent work that you've done and some of the findings that you've reached regarding the impact of Again, usually you're measuring political connectedness rather than corruption directly, although I think a lot of people would infer that there that corruption is the underlying causal mechanism. But but say a bit more about this line of your research. I think the results are, are really important. So thank you for bringing that up, because especially as someone indoctrinated in the field of economics, I do tend to think most often in terms of dollars and GDP rather than social welfare. And the two, one thinks, are related, but not the same thing. There's also a good excuse to kind of say something about where ideas come from, because the first project that got me interested in this, the question of societal, the broader societal consequences of corruption, it's easy to trace the lineage of this project because uh, it really started with a front page New York Times story on a mine collapse in China. There had been an explosion, a dozen or so people had been killed. uh, And the story talked about the fact that uh, the, the owner of the mine or an owner of the mine was uh, a local mayor. Now the local mayor oversees the local safety inspector. So you can already see the problem there. That is I can save money on compliance costs, which can be very high safety compliance costs, but I run this tail risk of having the mine collapse or explode. 
So the empirical exercise that my longtime collaborator, Yong Chung, and I undertook was we looked at uh, the safety records of publicly traded companies in China as a function of whether they had as a top executive a former senior public official, where senior is defined as vice mayor of the prefecture or higher. So these are pretty senior people. I don't think it was necessarily surprising that more workers died at the ones that were run by former public officials. Uh, I think what was surprising, first of all, was the magnitude of the effect, that is the probability of dying if you happen to be a coal miner at a politically connected firm versus a not connected one, I think was something like double. So uh, it wasn't a matter of 10% or 15%. It was a matter of you're getting into orders of magnitude. The other thing that we thought was quite interesting and gets us closer to saying that this is because it allows you to shirk on safety rather than say, I know I'm going to get into mining in a particularly hazardous area, so I better hire a public official to help me manage the permits and so on, is we also looked at safety audits. Now, there was no difference in safety audits at connected versus unconnected companies, conditional on a worker death. And this is almost mechanical because a worker death triggers a safety audit. Now, if you look at years when there was no worker death, you know, you got lucky, uh, there were literally zero major safety audits at the connected firms. So they were being entirely left alone. And so this is to underscore that if we want to think about the consequences of corruption, you need to broaden one's notion of social welfare beyond GDP per capita. There's a much, there's a really nicely done paper by a student of mine, Yimin Kao, who looks at which buildings fell down in the Sichuan earthquake as a function of whether they were built under the auspices of uh, connected local officials versus unconnected ones. And again, you get this pretty stark social cost in uh, which you can measure in lives lost. I think what's particularly nice about Yemen's work is it highlights the fact that corruption can create these social societal vulnerabilities. That is, you don't even know there's a problem in most states of the world because you're kind of just uh, hiding behind a facade of decent construction broadly construed, but you don't really know that there's nothing solid holding the whole the whole edifice, holding it up. Uh, and only when there's times of vulnerability do you see where there have been problems. It's fascinating. So again, so much to say about that, but I did want to get have an opportunity, since we don't have that much time left, to hear a little bit about your research on the United States, corruption or related issues like political connectedness or political influence in the United States. I'll say by way of an aside, one of the things that's interesting about this is a lot of people who are in this field who study corruption start domestically and then go abroad. I think that the first interview I ever did for this podcast was with Susan Rose Ackerman when I asked her about her whole history. She started out as a young economist looking at 
uh, corruption, I think, in housing programs in the United States. And that got her interested in corruption. Then she went abroad to the developing world. And you kind of went and did this uh, trip in reverse. You started your, your early career was very much focused on corruption issues um, in places like Indonesia, uh, China, and so forth. But a lot of your recent work has you've kind of come, come home, uh, if you will. So can you talk a little bit about both what, what led you in that direction? Since one of the things that's been very interesting about this conversation is getting a little bit more of the backstory about how these research projects came to be. Uh, and also, more specifically, what are the kinds of questions you've asked? What have you found? Do you see a strong thematic connection between the work that you've done on corruption and connectedness abroad and, and what you've done in the United States? Or are these things kind of only superficially similar and actually the underlying mechanisms and dynamics are, are really different? So let me try to give a semi-cohesive narrative response to those various and variously related questions. Uh, let me say that if you study corruption, I'm sure you've experienced this. If you talk to a general audience about corruption globally, one does tend to focus on the cases of Indonesia, uh, India, etc., as opposed to Sweden, Denmark, United States, even. And a question that often comes up quite reasonably is, aren't things just the same way in the US? It's just that you've legalized it. That is, we have lobbying, we have campaign contributions, we now have dark money, we have super PACs, etc. And my reaction, and the reference to dark money will already hint at how my views may have changed. My reaction always used to be, yeah, but at least here you can follow the money, you know who's trying to influence whom. And since that is at least out there in the public domain, at least in theory, uh, the public can respond to this in which politicians they choose to support and which they choose to vote out of office. Now, there are two problems with this view. One is that I think things are just much less transparent than this aspirational statement would suggest. And the second is it is shocking to the extent that voters just don't seem to care or the extent to which they care is dominated, completely dominated by partisan lenses. Uh, that is, it's always the other guy that's corrupt or the, the person from the other party that's corrupt. There are people working on this latter question. I do not really. I'm more interested or have been more interested in this question of hidden influence. And this hidden influence can be hidden attempts at influencing legislators. It can also be hidden attempts at influencing regulators. Uh, and we've done work. When I say we, I've worked on these issues for a long time now with Marianne Bertrand at Chicago and Francesco Trebi and Matilda Bombardini at Berkeley. Uh, we've worked on both of these things. I'll talk about the hidden influence of legislators because it responds to your question of how we came to work on U.S. corruption. This is another one where I can trace it back to a very specific point in time. Uh, it was a conversation with a former student. I used to teach MBA students. I used to teach at Columbia. So New York is a much smaller place. So I ran into a former student on the street at around 105th Street. One day, he's someone who I'd known fairly well when he was a student, so I knew where he'd gone. Um, I'm not allowed to say where he was working because he asked me never to mention it in public, 
but I will just say it's, say, a Fortune 100 company, so a very large company, and he'd gone there to do uh, community development work. Uh, I asked him how it was going, and he said, well, not so well. I'm actually thinking of leaving and uh, starting an independent consulting practice, and I asked him why, and in so many words, he said, well, because I thought I was going to be reaching out on behalf of such, of such and such a company to help communities empower themselves when, in fact, all I'm doing is working under the direction of the government relations people at such and such company, effectively trying to please the politicians that are important for their regulatory environment. Uh, and one of the ways that uh, politicians are made happy is by this company making donations to charities that are of interest to uh, said politician. And so I, I carried this observation around with me for some years and then mentioned it to Marianne, who's much better at doing stuff uh, than I am. And she said, this is an interesting idea. Let's actually study this at scale. Uh, so we collected data on charitable contributions of large U.S corporate foundations, and we mapped it to various aspects of their recipients, in particular, which political constituencies they were in. And the punchline from that paper, or one of the punchlines, I'll give two punchlines. One of the punchlines from that paper is that when a politician becomes more important to a company, uh, more I can say more about how that's defined, but let's just take it at face value for now. When a politician becomes more important to a company, that company starts to uh, direct its foundation to give more money to nonprofits in that politician's district. So that looks a little bit like hidden influence, which, you know, just given the scale of corporate philanthropy, ends up implicating very large sums of money. The other observation in the data or in the paper, which I think is in a way more striking, but less well-defined in a kind of causal inference sense, is that nonprofits that have politicians that are connected to them, for example, on their boards, just get vastly more of their revenue from corporate donations, vastly more. Now, there are lots of reasons why this could be true. It could be true that companies that earn more urban areas are more likely to have politicians on their boards. Larger nonprofits could have more politicians on their boards. What was striking to us, first of all, was the magnitude. It's like a six-fold difference. And second, no matter how you try to account for things like geography, size, industry, the effect doesn't really, the correlation doesn't really shift much. And so again, it looks like there's this catering to the interests of politicians with the hope we think of payback. That gives you a flavor of the current direction. That's, it's, it's fascinating and seems really important. I, I'm mindful of the time, although you've already been very generous with your time, so we're going to wrap soon. But before we end, let me ask you two final questions, and I'll put them together, even though they're a little bit different. So one is kind of backwards looking, and one is more forward looking. The backward looking question goes like this. It's been about two decades or so since you've been working in this area, since you had an advisor who first got you interested in studying political connections to Suharto under Indonesia. 
And I'm interested over the course of that time, what are some kind of big, interesting lessons that you think you've learned, the field has learned about corruption and its causes and effects? So maybe some things that surprise you, where your own views have changed. Um, I could pick up on the title of your co-authored book with Professor Golden, like what every corruption, what everyone needs to know, like what are some things that everyone needs to know um, that might not have been straightforward to uh, someone who wasn't really familiar with, with the research. So basically, I know, it, I know it's a little bit unfair uh, to ask such a broad question in a podcast, but if there are a few things that you might highlight as like really important central findings or ideas uh, that have emerged from your 20-year-plus engagement with this topic area, I'd, I'd love to hear them. I'm sure our listeners would, too. The forward-looking final question is uh, really maybe uh, especially relevant to those among our listeners who are themselves uh, academic researchers at an earlier stage of their careers. And I'll pick up on something that you said at several points, actually, throughout our conversation. At various points, you know, you got ideas from senior people in the field, like, here's an important thing. Why don't you look into this? And I, I'd just like to in- invite you to offer some general advice to up-and-coming researchers, economists, but maybe also people working in related social science fields like political science, uh, sociology, anthropology, whatever. So, so the first question is looking back, what would you highlight as some big important lessons or, or surprises in the study of corruption? And then looking forward, what advice would you give for a new generation of up and coming researchers about what topics they should be focusing on, what methods maybe they should be emphasizing. And if you want to frame this in negative as well as positive terms, maybe some things that have been done to death and they, they should avoid or, or some blind alleys or pitfalls that with the wisdom of experience, you might caution them about. So I'll try to keep all of that in my head as I answer, but there's a lot of material to digest there. I think if there's kind of an, a couple of overarching and You'll have to pardon me if these are obvious to any observer of the topic, but a couple of things I think I've come to to appreciate more is, first of all, that the cost of corruption is not something you want to measure in bribes paid and received or even contracts awarded on the basis of connections rather than merit, but just how it completely distorts incentives throughout an economic and uh, throughout an economy and society. That is, it affects who chooses to go into public service. It affects how companies choose to allocate their resources. You know, if you get rich by making connections rather than becoming a good engineer, then you make connections rather than going to MIT to get a mechanical engineering degree. So these kind of distortions in incentives are perhaps more important than I would have thought of as my 20-year-old self. A second observation I would make is that people do, and maybe this is kind of an effect of a more basic fundamental attribution error. That is, we tend to uh, attribute failings to individuals rather than the circumstances that they're in. This is a problem not so much of bad people, but bad systems. That is, people reasonably quickly acculturate to whatever uh, circumstances that they're in. And if they're in a bribe-paying system, they pay bribes. There are 
are great stories. I got some from a Chilean PhD student of mine. They're actually in a footnote in the book with Miriam somewhere. Newspaper stories about stupid Americans who go to Chile thinking that they are in this vast realm of corruption that is South America, and they try to bribe uh, Santiago police officers, and it does not work out well because they're not in a bribe-paying culture. So that is to highlight that the problem is with systems, not people. It's not to say that there isn't variation in ethical uh, standards across people. And it's certainly not to say that uh, education is unimportant and indoctrination, to use uh, a more provocative term, is not important. It's to say that circumstances matter a great deal as well. Now, to turn to kind of a forward-looking perspective, I think the only thing I would say that's been, I don't want to say it's been done to death, but uh, if you're thinking about kind of the questions that are of interest to the field at this point, it is not simply measuring corruption and documenting that it exists. That has been done to death. It's not useful to find another way of showing that connections matter uh, for firm profits. We kind of want to know what are the ultimate societal consequences, which are actually a much, much harder set of questions. We want to know the efficiency consequences. We want to know the social, we want to know the consequences in terms of human suffering. We want to know the consequences, broadly speaking, in terms of social welfare. I more kind of specifically, I do think I will come back to something that you brought up at the very beginning of the conversation, which is when is corruption sort of bad and when is it really, really bad? And when might it even be good to have, if you like, a safety valve in the system as the kind of some of the early thinkers on this, Huntington and others, suggested, when might it actually be beneficial? And I think we really don't have a whole lot on that. And finally, in terms of where do ideas come from, mostly they don't come from some senior scholar showing the magnanimity that my advisor did. Mostly it comes from reading the newspaper, talking to your classmate. And so that is the main advice that you need to be grounded in the discipline, that you need to read outside of the discipline. Terrific advice. Uh, and I, I think uh, advice that uh, many people, me included, <laughs> can, can take to heart. Um, thank you so much. This has been so helpful and informative. Our guest today on Kickback has been Ray Fisman, a professor of economics at Boston University and uh, one of the leading experts in economics or elsewhere in the study of corruption, anti-corruption. Ray, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk to us. I should just say, add on a personal note, when I first got interested in this corruption issue uh, later in, in terms of career stage than you, I was already, you know, I'd already been a professor for many years when I turned to this. The, I, I came across your papers very early on in my review of this, and I had, didn't actually meet you in person until many years later, but just really influential on my own thinking about this topic, uh, both in terms of the conclusions, but also just in terms of framing uh, and, and organizing uh, an approach to the study of corruption. So, so thank you very much on a personal note, uh, and thank you for sharing your experience, insights, uh, and thoughts with our listeners today. Well, thank you. You're definitely too kind. And that's it, another episode of Kickback. 
the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. Kickback is a joint production of the Anti-Corruption Blog and the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network. It is produced by Christopher Starke, Niels Kürbis, Matthew Stevenson, with help from Amy Assad. We hope you enjoyed the episode.